Hello, this is Stephen. Thanks for tuning in to the Bureau of Lost Culture. If this is your first time, welcome. If you've been here before, you will know that there's nothing that we like better here than a story of lost culture. A story of music under repression and a story of human endeavour. And we have such a story today, and what a story it is. In the swinging 1960s, after nearly a century of colonization by the French, Cambodia had gained its independence and was ready to rock. Young musicians from the countryside flocked to the vibrant cosmopolitan capital city of Phnom Penh. Teenagers cycled along the Mekong River, guitars slung across their backs, on their way to rehearse Khmer covers of the Beatles or Pink Floyd. The city was a melting pot of sound, old-fashioned rock and roll, early heavy metal, crooners and swooners, and love duets. But the music stopped on the 17th of April 1975. The Khmer Rouge army captured Phnom Penh, ending the civil war and beginning a genocide. Around 90% of the musicians died in the killing fields. A few fled to the US or France, taking what remained of their music with them. I first came across this story a few years back when we were curating a film programme for our X-ray audio project, with which it has some parallels. But more of that in a second. I wanted just to point you at bureauoflostculture.com, particularly if you haven't been here before. You can check out all that we do there. I wanted to say thanks to Roger, Judy and Tim for their support this month, and to Ronnie Lambert for keep sending me amazing videos uh, connected with the counterculture. Thanks, Ronnie. Keep it up. You don't have to support us by giving hard cash, although that, of course, is very welcome. You can make suggestions or just sign up for our newsletter, The Countercultural Times. So, back to it. The story that I mentioned of the lost music of Cambodia has been covered in detail by an incredible new book. It's called Away From Beloved Lover, which is the title of one of the hits of that golden era of Cambodian pop and rock and roll. And its author, Dee Payok, is with me to talk about that era, but also to talk about her journey, her odyssey into the heart of darkness and into the heart of light of those wonderful tunes, those wonderful musicians, and those wonderful days that were brutally brought to an end. Here she is. Hello, Dee. Hi. First of all, congratulations on this book. Um, it is quite something fascinating, grim at times, tragic, also funny, and a sort of personal odyssey through some beautiful music and the beautiful times, but also the sort of darkness of the human psyche as well, right? Is that that That's a beautiful summary. I mean, I, I think it's, uh, for me, it was so important to tell the story of Cambodia that it's more than just the Khmer Rouge, it's more than just the Killing Fields, which I think is kind of, uh, you know, a level of uh, knowledge for a lot of people. But, you know, there's so much more to Cambodia and Cambodian culture has, you know, has fascinated me for such a long time. Well, I think we should come back to that, that fascination. But in terms of, you know, the the content and the music that you write about, I think it is a surprise probably for most of us to realise that there was this extremely rich modern musical history i mean we probably think oh cambodia lots of sort of folk music and stuff but we're talking about swing we're talking about rock and roll we're talking about crooners swooners the twist cha-cha-cha very heavily western influenced music but i don't think many of us have been aware that what a kind of rich 
an original culture it was in Cambodia in those years, right? In, in Cambodia, they talk about two kind of cultural golden ages, and they talk about the first being sort of the Angkorian period, where we think about Angkor Wat and we think about the temples and what mm. you know Cambodia is famous for around the world. And you know, and with that came music and this rich historic culture. And then we have the sort of second coming of the Golden Age, as they call it, which is the, the period called Sanctum Restrinium. Mm. And this is between 1955 and 1970. We're going to fill out some of that history of the times that you described then. But I wanted in a way to, to read something from the book, which is one of your interviewees talking to you about the kind of end of that Golden Age, really, and then sort of cycle backwards from there. So this is your interviewee, Keo Sinan, is that how you mm-hmm. pronounce it? Yeah. Whenever the bombs came, I ran with my 45 RPM records and the clothes on my back. I didn't care about saving anything else. I had to save my records. Sinan is a session drummer from Kampong Thom province in central Cambodia. In the early 1970s, when civil war closed the clubs in Phnom Penh, he was forced to move back to the countryside to find work. By 1974, his village was under the control of the Khmer Rouge, and it was too dangerous to have records. People who were found with records were killed because they didn't allow people to listen to popular music anymore, he tells me. Our village leader asked everyone to bring any music records to them to be destroyed. At the time, I'd been put in charge of planting vegetables, so I hid my records in metal boxes in an abandoned outhouse near my home. I didn't bury them as they would have been destroyed with no air getting to them, so I put them in loose plastic bags inside metal boxes. The outhouse contained chemical fertiliser and, because of all the poisonous chemicals and pesticides, people were reluctant to go near it. I visited the outhouse once a week to check on the records, always around noon when most people stayed indoors to escape the heat. One time a Khmer Rouge officer summoned me to tell me that he had heard that I was in possession of old records and that if I did have these records I should not have them as they were prohibited. I told them that all my records were lost when my house burned down after being bombed. But two officers kept visiting my house and investigating. I was so frightened, I gave them both watches as a gift. There was constant danger. As we were just saying before we started, that's the sort of, that touched uh, me because of course I spent so long investigating the subject of underground forbidden music in the Soviet Union. And I think for a lot of people listening to this who imagine deep music lovers and possibly record collectors as well, That's very touching because that's somebody who their music is so important to them. In fact, in this case, their records are so important to them that they are taking pretty drastic risks to save those of all their cultural possessions, in fact, of all their possessions. That's quite powerful, isn't it? It's really powerful. And I think because he lived in the countryside in an area that was occupied by the Khmer Rouge two years earlier than the cities you know the image of him running when the bombs were coming with records to save them was was just so powerful to me and um and just the image of him kind of tending to these records mm. he was a he was a vegetable farmer during the Khmer Rouge mm. and he's sort of by day tending to these vegetables and then you know he'd sneak <laughs> off and tend to his records you know at noon every day religiously and you know and we're talking about quite a few years um that he did that if it weren't for people like Sanan, mm. a lot of this music would have got lost. Mm. I mean, I, there were stories that I recount in the book about children throwing records into the rivers like frisbees and because they didn't have anything to play it on and they didn't know. Some of them mm. were young enough not to know what a record was. So, so much was lost. There was a lot of kind of, there was burning of books, mm. you know, similar to the Nazis. There was, the, you know, the libraries were dynamited, the banks as well. So there was this idea about bringing everything back to year zero during mm. Khmer Rouge times. People literally th- hid things in, in nooks and crannies in, in buildings and then they were evacuated out of the cities and many of them didn't come back. And those right. that did, they might not have had a claim to their previous property. And then there's the refugee movement and everything mm. gets spread out around the world that they did manage to hide and keep during those times in terms of mm. records, you know. So there's only a fraction left of what was right. once there. Well, why don't we hear one of those fractions, the Give us a song. I think we'll have a song from Rosary Satia. One of those songs that's always, uh, you know, kind of stood out for me. It's a garage rock song. It's called I'm 16. It translates as Chanam Undok Kramoy, and it's all about the kind of buoyancy of youth and, and the excitement, you know, you feel at that age. 
Well, you talk about people, other people, um, who, you know, basically destroyed their own records and music and other sort of ephemera because they feared being found with them and because they'd been facing execution, right? So if you'd hold, held on to them. What's uh, extraordinary for me, of course, is that we're really talking about 1974, 1975. The period I was talking about was 20 years early, 1955, mm-hmm. you know, the Stalinist terror in the Soviet Union. So 75, in this country, punk is kicking off. It's starting to feel like history, but, you know, for a lot of people, that feels like part of the, you know, relatively recent times, right? But Dee, let's fill out the story up to then. So we started there, you know, with one of your interviewees and talking about the coming of the Khmer Rouge. But maybe you could just fill out, you know, from the French... Uh, occupation of Cambodia because it was a protectorate wasn't it part of like you could say the French Empire in some way so that we know how it came to these dire times so it was 90 years I think was the length of time that it was a French protectorate in Cambodia and at this you know you've got the French uh, you know colonizing Vietnam at the same time Cambodia was always that sort of buffer zone and caught up in geopolitics for a lot of its history and the Khmer Empire going back much further was spread over Thailand, Laos, you know, it was a huge, powerful empire. Um, So the relationship between all these different neighbouring countries is quite fraught. Starting with the French protectorate, we've got, you know, uh, a period of time where you had the French investing in roads, but not particularly in education or anything that really would benefit people outside of the cities. Um, And then those that you know, were wealthier in the cities, were sort of really caressed and mm. charmed by the French, um, in, you know, to kind of bring them on side, really. So the kind of the ruling classes, the elite, the kind of middle to upper classes in Cambodian society, very influenced by French culture mm. and mm. Um, French signs on the streets. There was a lot of French, you know, kind of influence on food, for example. And also the, the lycée sort of school system as well. You know, that was from the French pe- protectorate time and that still kind of exists. So you had that kind of that split didn't you between the kind of elite Cambodians mm. the sort of upper middle class who were sort of very much allied culturally with the with the sort of French overlords and then mm-hmm. the sort of big gap and then the kind of more rural population which was you know a kind of peasant population right and those in some ways that split in later decades proved to be catastrophic right. Yeah and I think the influence with America um, during the war um, where you know the bombs are splitting the people from kind of the countryside where you know who experience a lot more of the bombs and the bombings mm. campaigns particularly in the east because it was all to do with trying to kind of stop the Viet Cong mm. and their kind of supply lines you know again another outside mm. kind of power coming mm. in and 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 creating more of a divide between what mm. the Khmer Rouge called old people and new people right right the city right, people yeah. and the old you know yeah, the being metropolitan the new. and the rural but the, the french left peacefully didn't they it was a kind of peaceful transition and the, you know there wasn't a kind of huge like a war of independence or anything right there wasn't but you know the japanese occupied cambodia during the second world war so they lost a lot of that hold the french and so it was a kind of easing out mm. after that that occurred and you have Sihanouk who was this charismatic pick really from the French they picked you know they plucked him out of the royal family picked out as, as kind of someone that they thought was quite malleable but actually turned out to be quite the opposite by 55 he'd abdicated the throne and he would he was very popular with the people he was a real populist leader and really that's kind of in a way where the sort of musical story that you tell starts, isn't it? So tell us about that. Tell us about the, the dawn of this new golden age. Starting with Norodom Sihanouk, who was originally king. Norodom Sihanouk, then abdicated, became prince. Was still very much in, in name by the people, the king, for all his years until his death. He saw kind of culture as a vehicle to kind of modernise Cambodia and, and he was personally very interested in it he was a singer he was Mm. a musician he was a film director Uh, he got a lot of criticism for that as well you know when the bourgeoisie sort of turned on him Mm. towards the end of his reign um, because his focus they saw it as too much on that his pleasure pursuits than actually leading the country but I mean he nationalized a lot of things as well so and just invested a lot in architecture and it became known as the pearl of the orient Mm. you know Singapore was 
inspired some of its architecture from from Phnom Penh. So, you know, a leader uh, for a time in Southeast mm. Asia of, of culture and modernism. And there was just a lot of investment in education and government officers were sent abroad to France to study. So mm. it was a time of mobilization and movement, mm. you know, energy and a lot of change. Because the musical culture, the first kind of wave of homegrown bands start to get influenced first of all by kind of French like French chanson isn't it it's mm. for French music anyway that's the first kind of western major influence that comes in I think jazz as well you know kind mm. of in the 50s you've got Edith Piaf was mm. um, huge there and you know so mm. you have these um, samba and all these other kind of uh, influences coming in in the 50s and and then you know the radio starting up rowing throughout the kind of late 50s and then we get to the early 60s and that's when it all takes off and then surf guitar starts you know the, the shadows went on tour shadows and, massive sort of influence yeah, right they were not just in terms of the music but in terms of like the outfits and these kind of choreographed sort of movements on stage right exactly um, just say a little bit about Sinsimuth because he's such a figure isn't he throughout this whole thing I mean I was trying to think of a kind of a comparison that people might be able to get hold of. It's sort of like almost like a cross between Cliff Richard and Elvis. I mean, it's in terms of stature, absolutely mm. massive, right? And also, but went through these kind of different phases, didn't he? Right the way through to the seventies. But maybe you could talk a little bit about him. I mean, his career was. 20 years long he was a real chameleon and that's how he mm. kept kind of at the forefront mm. of culture at that level you know kind of reigning over the whole music industry throughout that period but he started in the late 50s um, as that chanson sort of type mm. you know crooner and then he was part of the palace orchestra and so he had these quite traditional kind of roots he came from the north from a very impoverished sort of background he had a musical dream you know followed it he was a nurse he went to Phnom Penh to work and and then kind of was moonlighting on the side doing sort of shows and then started getting involved in radio and you know this this sort of grew throughout the late 50s and then by kind of 62 he has his first hit which is um called champa batamong and it's still you know very much the soundtrack to cambodia you know it's rare that you go through a day listening to radio or being on a bus and you know listening to some karaoke or being you know in cambodia without hearing that song บ่นบ่องบ่นดูลจนเอ้ยยมโซบเนี่ยหายเตียงอะไรตั้งปีครบยมบ้านเกลียดเตยชายบ่ลควายในสดายผมเมียนเปลาอ๋อบ่นดม
transistor radios in homes and at that point things really were changing. Mm. I think you mentioned too about workers having transistors strapped to their heads whilst they're working <laughs> this early version of an iPod. <laughs> uh, that, that was a, 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 something I'd heard about um, rubber workers strapping them to their heads as they worked. I just love that image. Um, yeah, that's dedication. We love that. Uh, so you mentioned then, see, we, we've had the sort of crooners and then the, the cha-cha-cha, that was an important thing. The twist, mm. there wasn't there a huge hit mm. with a kind of chubby checker takeoff? There was. Uh, so Jim Kem was kind of the forerunner to Sinsismut. And mm. um, he went to study ceramics in Italy and came back with uh, from his uh, training with uh, a chubby checker record. Mm. And, uh, you know, he'd started recording a little bit in, in Italy and... Uh, had a very smooth kind of crooner voice too, but he, uh, you know, he brought back the twist and he had mm. a song called Twist Twist Kenyam, um and it took off and mm. it uh, sort of was, you know, outrageous to the establishment at the time who you know there's there was some wonderful like letters that i read from kind of the old guard writing into you know to one national newspaper about you know the, the outrage. outrageousness yeah. of, of chim Kem and his hips yeah. well i mean you know obviously that was a big theme too in the soviet union and there was sort of the, the rhythms certain rhythms seem to get the authorities in, the, in a real fluster you know because the, the idea was that it would um incite the wrong kind of passions in young people in mm. particular when they should be getting on with building the new nation but um but actually it wasn't just there it was actually here too and in mm. america too wasn't it you know elvis is lambasted by certain groups of society the devil's music and all that stuff it was the time wasn't it mm. but in, in phnom penh in particular possibly other places in cambodia there was all there was a nightclub culture wasn't there real swinging 60s stuff actually right fashion parties maybe you could say something about the kind of the moral shift that happened here you know in terms of say, sexual freedoms and development of women's rights and stuff was that also going on in cambodia too amongst the metropolitan elite at least completely mm. um so you have uh you know some of the more traditional kind of artists um who barely moved on stage and you know, kind of stuck with that kind of more traditional sort of mm. jazz sound. And mm. then you had kind of the new <laughs> coming in in the mid-60s with uh, people like Penron. She was a, definitely a kind of feminist amongst mm. female kind of artists. And she was quite satirical in her kind of lyrics. And um, she was very independent. And there's a lot of humour in her mm. lyrics too. But she, you know, she really got into Go-Go and into, you know, the miniskirt. And her and Siang Bang T, another one, were the four forerunners for that whole kind of thing and you know and so smooth he was like i said the chameleon who mm. he released a lot of go-go songs too did a go-go album though um, he may have, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I know I know. there's probably an album's mm. worth of <laughs> Coco songs, for sure. I think it's time for another tune. Next we have one of the Draca songs. This is from 1974. This is Sarawan Chan Pen Boramai, uh, which means Dancing the Sarawan Under the Moon. speed at which these new western let's call them that musical forms were taken up in Cambodia the difference I noticed one difference anyway between that and what happened a bit later in the Soviet Union where also you know as after Khrushchev and the Thor dances and musical themes also came to the Soviet Union but in Cambodia it's apparent that quite quickly they were making it their own with their own 
lyrics, for instance. I mean, what happened in the Soviet Union was is that when they, they were singing like Beatles songs in English very badly. And certainly the people that I met uh, who were the sort of proper underground music fans were, were incredibly dismissive of that. You know, they didn't want to hear like Russian bands pretending to be the Beatles by singing in English. They wanted their own homegrown stuff, which came later. But uh, in Cambodia, they were doing some stuff in English, but they were actually writing their own lyrics. And it's quite interesting that you said then about that artist. She was not only singing, but she was writing her own lyrics and music, is that right? She's the only female artist I know of that, that really mm. did that, apart from another one called um, Poe Vannery, who was much mm. later in the 70s. They, you know, they would cover these songs and they would change the lyrics and they would sing in Khmer to begin with. And mm. it, it was during the Sankham Ristranian period up to 1970, it was sort of outlawed to kind of sing in English. But in oh. the 70s they were allowed to and it was encouraged so anything you hear with them english lyrics is most likely to be the 70s why was the why was it kind of illegal as it were to sing in english it was some policy that sihanouk mm. uh you know head of state um brought in but i think it was to kind of really encourage a homegrown, of, encourage culture. A homegrown mm. culture exactly mm. it's a bit like in france wasn't it they've still got like i think a law in france haven't they? they've got to play a certain amount of French language yeah. music on the radio. I'm in favour of that, by the way. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> right. So, okay. So that did encourage it, in fact, didn't it? And so this homegrown Cambodian sounds is quite different, isn't it? Very particular, isn't it? And that's one of the things that always draw me to it mm. is that you can hear in some of the mm. recordings, you can hear the tro, which is a violin, mm. a traditional Khmer mm. instrument, and mm. that's kind of blending with Western instruments and. Uh, there's an artist called Mo Kinyol who um, is the guitar player for the band Baxi Cham Krong, a surf, surf rock band, and they were the first sort of guitar band. He would impersonate Cambodian instruments on his electric guitar. As the 60s wear on and as, you know, different musical styles are coming in the West, the sort of, you know, the Stones and the later Beatles and that more kind of rocky sound, that also gets taken up, doesn't it? So they move on mm -hmm. from the kind of groovy 60s, kind of slightly lightweight cha-cha-chas and that into this heavier sound, right? Yeah, that's right. And uh, and I think it's it's... A lot of that is the influence from mm. uh, the Vietnam War and military right. radio, American mi right. military radio being picked up. There's songs like, uh, you know, The Animals, you start hearing covers of, of, of their music. Um, Santana later was huge in Cambodia, and it's, yeah, you know, they, they just, for some reason, really drawn mm. Santana. Mm. Uh, since this moot did a cover of a Black, uh, Black Magic Woman. So th there's a harder rock sound coming mm. in kind of the late 60s into the 70s. Yeah, I think also we'd, let's flip into sort of some political history because America gets involved with Vietnam around 1965, right? Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned earlier, Cambodia, which had, you know, desperately in a way tried to maintain its neutrality, but it's surrounded by these kind of countries where there's lots of conflict going on. A lot of so-called South Vietnam runs up its east side, doesn't it? You've got mm -hmm. Laos to the to the north, North Vietnam sort of beyond that. This sort of shameful story of the Vietnam War started to affect them. I get the impression that. America was bombing, as you said, inside Cambodia, pretty much without consent, as far as you can tell. Mm. Right? They were just doing it, weren't they? To try and cut off the Viet Cong supply lines. And it's that so this kind of pretty desperate impact on Cambodia. The bombing campaigns were mm. catastrophic mm. and they were, you know, the scale of them wasn't really known mm. until 
Clinton declassified mm. records uh, not too long ago. So U.S. soldiers were sort of sworn to secrecy. You know, mm. there was a lot was unsaid for decades about mm. the extent of the bombing, but it was used by politicians in Cambodia, mm. to Khmer Rouge particularly, mm. um, who were a guerrilla army throughout the 70, early 70s, um, and then took power in 75. Mm. They used that to kind of basically recruit soldiers and mm. recruit people in the provinces to mm. their side and to mm. their cause because they were losing their homes and they were losing their families. Mm. Another c- catastrophic foreign intervention, you know. Mm. Uh, and of course had the opposite effect of what it's just supposed to because it just basically radicalised a lot of people. So Sinsenuk gets deposed, doesn't he? I guess he was seen as being not very effective politically and allowing various things to happen. But this right-wing government comes in that's actually kind of supported by America, right? They are. And I think, you know, Sihanouk was sort of walking this tightrope politically for years with sort of turning a blind eye to the Viet Cong, mm. using their supply lines in the jungles in the east and keeping America on side at the same time in South Vietnam. So he was walking this political tightrope between the mm. two sides. And uh, and then, you know, you have America saying, right, we've had enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, people that weren't too happy with Sihanouk sort of, you know, eyes on his personal pursuits, mm. his cultural pursuits, his populist sort of behaviour. And so it was when he was in, on a kind of... Uh, he was in Moscow, right? He was in Moscow, His cousin yeah. sort of sees his power, right? Yeah, so it was his cousin who was sort of the kind of puppet master really mm-hmm. and then you had um, Lon Knoll who was the sort of malleable chosen kind of leader by, from, from the American side mm-hmm. and it was a coup that while Sihanouk was in Moscow went on and, and then he was banished and he mm-hmm. went straight to um, uh, to China Tried yeah. to get sort of backing from them to get back in power yeah, right? but exactly. strangely this, this right wing coup backed by the Americans, did actually musically in it had a sort of strange effect in it because all this American music starts piling into Cambodia, right? And of course that affects the local scene, right? So you get this new kind of new style of music emerging, mm. right? And I think, you know, during Sihanouk's time there was a lot of mm. propaganda music anyway, right. you know, songs about places and uh, power of Cambodia. But then, you know, the 70s when you have the Lon government, there's, it's a military government, and so you have this kind of new movement with um, songs that are drafting soldiers mm. in their lyrics, and um, you know musicians were told to you know don military uniforms. Mm. They were given you know ranks. They were you know so you had this harder sound mm. and a change in lyrics from kind of the wonders of Cambodia and love and you know all the things of Sihanouk's time to don't be ashamed to kill that was one lyric yes, wasn't it you know yeah. women sort of take up rifles and at the same time I mean some pretty it sounds a bit sort of superficial to say it, but some pretty cool artists as well mm. right yeah so obviously without having the benefit of speaking Khmer you know you just listen to the music and it's pretty cool right mm-hmm. hard rock stuff mm-hmm. one of my favorites is um your Solorang. He had a cover of Gloria, but most of his songs were originals and, you know, a lot of garage rock songs. Mm. And another one he sang, uh, it's called Dying Under Woman's Sword. <laughs> so it's, you know, don't hide behind women's skirts and, you know, get off to war. Sinsenuk appears on these single covers for sort of wearing fatigue. Is it Ray, the, the woman singer? She, she parachutes out of yes, bombers? Yes, she does. Rosaray Satia, she was married to, a, to sort of someone who's quite high up in the military mm. at that point. And um, it was, she was sent off to do this sort of media PR stunt, mm. which is paratrooping and mm. jumping out of airplanes. Yeah. <laughs> and you say, uh, on the other hand, mimicking English and American accents, which had been banned from the radio as a form of youth defiance in the 50s and 60s, was now allowed under the Lon Nol regime. And the folk songstress, Poe Vanari, had a natural talent for it. The original Cambodian hippie, Vanari, mm-hmm. uh, was the first Cambodian woman to play guitar on stage. An iconoclastic band called Drakkar ushered in a harder, more American rock influence thanks to the sounds they emulated from US military radio and their own experience playing for the troops in war-torn Vietnam. Drummer Uk Samath mm. taunted the establishment by performing shirtless and frontman Touche Tanar picked fights with the audience and other bands on the roster. 
That's quite punk. <laughs> yeah, he is quite punk. Um, my first interview with Tanner was nine hours straight at a table. We didn't come up for air. And so he was a real motor mouth, but he's just led such a fascinating life. Reinvented himself so many different times in so many different guises. Uh, he's been a musician. He's been a gem mine sort of oligarch who's been a, a shipmate who's been a quite celebrated scientist so he's he's quite an interesting character mm. but darker times very much on the way Khmer Rouge which are in the kind of east and north aren't they and mm. this radical communist inspired movement getting backing from North Vietnam at this point as well aren't they and there's been a lot of bad blood created by the American bombings and so you've basically got a country that's uh, in civil war right mm. and you say 300,000 Cambodians are estimated to have died this is in the first part of 70s this is before the Khmer Rouge and the this right-wing uh, military government starts to fail and the Americans again pull out created them prop them up and then they decide we've had enough we're out I got the impression it's partly down to you know, the protests against the Vietnam War in America and in the West, you know, and they pulled out of uh, Vietnam for, probably for those reasons, an unwinnable war, of course. The uh, same thing, they just basically abandon Phnom Penh. They do, and, and actually Vietnam War protests were also in Phnom Penh right, as well, right, right, um, right. because, you know, people were dying in Cambodia, so uh, there was a lot of anti-Vietnamese sentiment. There was uh, killings of Vietnamese mm. in Cambodia as well mm. during this time as mm. vengeance. They pulled out and it left that government who were grossly under-resourced, grossly outnumbered, very, very vulnerable, and it was by the, by that stage, by the early kind of 1975, mm. it's just the cities that are still mm. holding against the Khmer Rouge. And then the leader, I think about a year later, he's, 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 is it Lon Nol gets killed? His brother does. He ends up living out his days in the US. But it's Sirik Matak, who mm. was the kind of puppet master we talked mm. about earlier, who ends up disappearing. And he was the father of one of the people that I got quite close to during mm. the you know, process of writing this book. And it wasn't until actually kind of getting to know mm. uh, his name is Charia that I discovered who his father was. Right. I think there was a kind of band of stalwart sort of brothers that kind of in that government that kind of stayed true mm. to the end, um, mm. went down with the ship, right, but Lon right, Nol right, escaped. Right. So you say that you began to depend on the Council of Buddhist Mystics, mm. reportedly ordering his helicopters to sprinkle a girl of consecrated sand around Phnom Penh to protect it from approaching Khmer Rouge forces. Didn't work. On April 17th, 1975, the Khmer Rouge invaded the capital and overthrew Lon Nol. They brought with them an extreme form of Maoist communism, a utopian dream of agrarian life, a classless society of Khmer equals who lived and ate together, a rewriting of history, a return to year zero. Also, Prince Sinuk catastrophically sort of sided with them, hadn't he? As a way to get back into power didn't really seem to be aware of what he was siding with and they very quickly kind of, he was imprisoned in his own palace, pushed aside and they got on with it. For people who don't know about the killing fields and all that time, I suppose the nearest thing we can probably compare it to is like the Taliban, I suppose. Very hardcore radical extremists coming in and bringing about these almost medieval um, circumstances, right? Yeah, they had this vision of sort of this agrarian utopia mm. and, mm. I mean, the visionaries, I think, in the Khmer Rouge were what they call the Paraset. They followed the writings of Marx and and then you had this sort of split with the kind of more hard-lined radical side mm. to the Khmer Rouge as well. I mean, it was the Paraset largely that were in power. Mm. It wasn't until the last year of their power that Pol Pot became a, pic a right. figurehead. Figure you know, right, people yeah. didn't even know. They just mm. knew Angkor, which mm. was the the term for the Khmer mm. Rouge, they didn't even know who Pol Pot was. Mm. And you say that, you know, within hours they began evacuating Phnom Penh. They, they sort of lie, basically, to the citizens, don't they? They say the Americans are coming to bomb, so, mm. like, you know, you've got to get out. And they sort of empty the city um, into the countryside. You've got all these kind of basically metropolitan urban people, you know, different classes, who are kind of forced out of the city into the countryside, and then they're bringing kind of people from the countryside into the city. It is kind of weird reversal and absolutely has catastrophic effects economically and all sorts of other ways but talk about in terms of music what happened to the musicians people that you'd already talked about i mean it's an estimation that 90 percent died during mm. the Khmer Rouge of the musicians because they had what the Khmer Rouge viewed as imperialist views modern views it didn't fit their idea of this mm. classless controllable society so the musicians hid themselves if they could but people like Sisamut were so visible and so well known there was no hiding. Yeah, his face was so recognisable. Exactly. Right? There are stories about him being killed pretty much immediately 
but we still don't know. Reported to have been killed in many different places, wasn't it? There's lots mm. of, sort of legends almost, or fables about where he died, right? It was. There was that film, Don't Think I've Forgotten, mm. in 2015, and there was a line from it that his son, Chanchaya, who I interviewed for the book, uh, talks about, I'm told my father died 50 times. How can someone die 50 times? Mm. And there are so many different stories mm. about where and when and how he died. And, mm. and similarly with many others, Seracity is another one. You know, mm. these are mass graves that are being mapped that, mm. you know aren't marked. So. Some of them may have died just on the road, exactly. walking, walking out of the city and into the countryside where they were completely ill-equipped to live just mm. to survive, you know, that kind of lifestyle. And whether they died on the roads, you know, or in the fields or were actually shot, you know, it's impossible to know, isn't it? It is. And I was, uh, I witnessed the tribunal verdict for the mm. Khmer Rouge Brotherhood in 2014 at the um, war crimes court in mm. Cambodia. You know, the evacuation was horrendous. I mm. mean, so many people died. Mm. Hospitals were turfed out. Mm. You know, people crawling mm. on streets. Yeah, it's emptied the hospitals, isn't it? And there were pregnant women mm. on Russell Tears mm. reported to have lost all of her children on the road. So there's so much that we don't mm. know. You know, having been in one of those bands would have almost kind of immediately a death sentence, wasn't it? I mean, people lied, mm. of course, about what they'd done, tried to, didn't you know, pretending that they were, they were other things. I think there's a point where just wearing spectacles was a kind of enough to get you executed, wasn't it? Mm. As a sort of sign that you were some yeah. sort of bourgeois intellectual. And in terms of what, what happened to music, you know, what then people allowed to sing and perform and even record? In the rice fields, it's back to the old telephone posts with speakers and, mm. uh, and, and propaganda music again, mm. but a different kind of propaganda music, mm. extolling the virtues of Angkor and, mm. and the songs have a more traditional folk kind of flavour to them. say here, music was another way for the Khmer Rouge to brainwash their slaves with extreme communist ideology. Very similar to the Soviet Union. Mm. Singers were made to extol Glorious Ankar in prescribed lyrics through loudspeakers set on tall poles. The blind bluesman Kong Nai was sent to a village in order to sing his chapeis, rhyming and improvised folk protest songs. But they asked me to sing only about their politics, he says. First the Khmer Rouge would tell me a story, and then they would ask me to play the chapé to explain the story to the people. Songs like the bourgeoisie taking advantage of the poor. That doesn't sound like a swinger, does it? <laughs> <laughs> I mm. mean, it's, it's strange because it's 20 years before in the Soviet Union, but it's the same sort of thing, you know, mm. that these really heavy-duty songs, pedagogical, dictatorial, to teach people. They knew the value of culture, of course. They knew the value of music, the power of the song. They were very well aware of that, right? But it was just that it was distorted to a particular political ideology. Yeah, that's right. Kong Nai was mm. very interesting because the nature of Chape music is mm. that it's, I mean, they're the quintessential kind of bard, mm. um, troubadour. They, mm. they create their lyrics on the spot. So they have these long, long intros. Mm. And then they have this sort of sitar kind of cross between a sitar and a lute, the Chape. So during that long intro, they're, they're creating their lyrics for the song. Mm. And then they come in and it's a very kind of, in Kong Nai's case, guttural kind of voice that he has and it's very bluesy. You know, you say this thing, it just reminded me of a particular incident which I came across in the Soviet Union, but you say in another village, Tushtana of Drakkar, that's the band we talked about earlier, uh, took a great risk when Khmer Rouge officers secretly asked him to sing them old songs from the bygone era, or after a little convincing to play songs by Sin Sissamuth. Uh, the Apsaraband and even American and British songs. On one occasion, he picked the light-hearted Obla di Obla da by the Beatles, and the soldiers went wild. That uh, reminded me, I think, 1940s. Isabel Ureva, who was a called so-called Russian tango singer, gypsy tango singer, whose repertoire had been stripped from being about 300 songs to about 12. You know, she wasn't allowed to sing the tango songs, but um, she was in her apartment one night, and um, the, the phone rang, which, of course, for many people at that time was like the end was coming, so she was absolutely terrified. But a voice said, um, get dressed, there's a car waiting for you down below, which of course would be terrifying to hear at that time. When she went down, she was driven to the Kremlin and driven to, there was a party going on with Stalin and various other people, and she was um, sitting outside. And uh, she'd been brought along to sing. One of the high-ranking communist apparatchiks said to her, comrade, 
you're ever, don't bother singing the, the Soviet songs. Sing one from the old days. And then so she went in and she sang Gypsy Tangas for the Soviet elite, you know, so the same sort of thing. They actually loved those songs and they kind of valued them still. There's a t- tremendous hypocrisy going on, right? Absolutely. So funny to hear that because mm. there was so much of that that went on from the stories I heard mm. where, you know, you're presented with this quest and you mm. don't know whether, you know, you're being tested. Is it a trap? Is it a trap? Or are they just... Mm. harking back to the old mm. days and mm. want to relive that. I, you know, obviously never spoke to anyone who fell into the trap because mm. they wouldn't be there to mm. talk to. But, you know, for those that, that I did speak to, they, they mm. were tested like that. And there were mm. many more that they talked about falling into those traps and mm. not coming back. You know, if you were summoned to the new village, that was code for you, right. were, you were going to be killed. You were done, yeah. Dee, we're coming to the end of that story and... Just to run it off, I mean, it didn't last that long, did it, actually, the Khmer uh, regime? So maybe you can just tell us, actually, how it came to, to an end. It was less than four years, mm. but in that time, a quarter of the population died, what they estimate. So it was catastrophic, and it mm. was auto-genocide. It was ca- Cambodians killing Cambodians. Mm. The Vietnamese came in and, on one hand, liberated, on another hand, was another government coming in to oppress, mm. in, mm. you know, depending on who you speak to. And the war carried on for right up until 1998 so mm. there was refugee camps mm. that people were were mm. making their way to so mm. you know but there was no economy they were mm. completely decimated Cambodia mm. so it took up until 1993 you mm. start to see the kind of beginnings mm. of some infrastructure coming back in of the musicians that you met and the ones, the ones that survived the Khmer Rouge um, regime, what happened to them afterwards? I mean, were they allowed back in to Phnom Penh? Were they allowed to kind of take up their instruments again? And Some of them made it back to Phnom Penh. Uh, one, one guy I spoke to talked about that time to me. You know, he, he said, I want to tell you my story. Mm. And, and his, because he was younger than a lot of the other musicians, mm. his name was Min Sotivan, he talked about it. The music saving him. He talked mm. about kind of mm. a cadre asking him, you know, mm. if he wanted to play a man- mandolin, and he played this mandolin, and it kind of saved his life because he ended up mm. living with this cadre and just playing music instead of hoeing the fields. Um, and because he'd been very ill, it really did save his life. On the road back to Phnom Penh afterwards, uh, after the Vietnamese invaded, you know, he finds a guitar and there's about three strings on it and you know he wants to play oh captain i'm your captain closer to home that's it you know which is obviously very poetic you know Mm. a lot of musicians they got to phnom penh they found that there was no jobs there was nothing you know lost their homes Mm. maybe you know Mm. so they end up kind of making their way back through the minefields Mm. to thailand to Mm. the refugee camps Mm. some were sponsored from those refugee camps to other countries the Mm. u.s Mm. Japan. Others stayed in the refugee camps and then came back to Cambodia and mm. then, you know, others found jobs within kind of the ministry bands, for example. Mm. So, mm. you know, they found their way back mm. um, to Phnom Penh. But I mean, a huge amount of them exterminated and even the ones who survived, their own families, all their kind of friends have been killed in this sort of absolute desperate time. So, But let's have a tune from the old times just to cheer us up. This is another cover song by Sin Sister Moot, and this song is uh, The Archies, Sugar Sugar. It's an amazing book, uh, Dee, and beautifully written, beautifully researched. And as we sort of draw to the end, I thought it'd be great for you to tell us about your odyssey to research and write it, how you came to it and what the process was. Well, I went in 2012 for the first time to Cambodia Mm -hmm. and I had a friend who was working for a newspaper called the Cambodia Daily Post. Hun Sen, autocrat for the last 30 years in power, has closed about 17 media outlets. One of them was the Cambodia 
Daily Post. But back when I went to see her, it was the one of two English English word papers. I went to see her, went to fulfil a kind of lifelong dream of going to see the temples. And I went to the south to a, to a mountain which had these sort of colonial remnants of, a, of an old hilltop town kind of elite from Phnom Penh would go to in the kind of 20s and 30s and take in the clear air there's an abandoned casino there um, which is now back in life uh, called Bokor Hotel but back in 2012 was just a shell but it was still covered in bullet marks and you know the path had been demined it was quite a wild place I walked into this building and there was a Cambodian man next to me with a with a kind of stereo on his shoulder and just as we were walking in this music just filled the room and it was um Procol Harum White Shade of Pale that was mm. the melody but I knew it wasn't it wasn't the song <laughs> it was a different it was a cover you know it's warped it, I just knew instantly it wasn't Procol Harum but then this voice comes in and it's Sinter Smoot but I didn't know at the time that was my introduction to um to Cambodian music and it was such a kind of otherworldly kind mm. of experience hearing mm. that music you know the farfisa was sort of bouncing off the walls and this voice was just filling this space and it was this art deco mm. kind of mm. cavern it was very euphoric one of those moments in life that you just feel this means something <laughs> i'd heard about cambodian rock and i went back to phnom penh i went and got basically there were no music shops so there was a clothes shop that had a guy with a with a with a laptop and you know, rewritable, rewritable discs, and so we downloaded like some digital files and onto these discs, and it was these three albums: Cambodian Rocks, mm. one, two, and three. That was my introduction, really. Mm. And then I was just so curious because you know I think there was a kind of watershed moment with 2015 when that film Don't Think I've Forgotten mm. came out. Before then, there was so little information mm. about the artists who made the music. And I was so captivated by that voice and I wanted to know mm. who he was. And then that grew into this just curiosity. I started going to the British Library and started seeing what I could find there and digging around and realised that actually the only way I was going to kind of uncover this story was going back to Cambodia. And I had a lot of conflict because I wanted a Cambodian to write this story. But, you know, and I wanted to read it. And then there's that mm. lovely Toni Morrison uh, quote, of you know if there's a book that hasn't been written that you want to read then you must write it yeah, that's great that's mm. that was my calling i guess mm. you know i just felt my own personal curiosity spiraled into this sort of almost a duty mm. when i kind of had saved that money gone back in 2014 to do the research spent six months out there interviewing people interviewing people traveling around you don't speak Khmer. i speak a tiny bit mm. in Khmer. you say dick dick i had Khmer lessons every week at mm. this um wonderful Cambodian NGO that is in typically kind of Cambodian fashion is kind of it's got this split sort of uh, goal where it has on once on one end it's to teach foreigners how to speak Khmer Cambodian language on the other side it's also a crash for um, sex workers kids so we would learn in the you know in the red light district on these little tiny kids plastic chairs I learned enough if I was in the provinces alone mm. and I, you know I had to find my way back I could mm. I could do that and but, you could use tr local translators and, and I used yeah, yeah exactly yeah, and it yeah. was the translators that you know was so much a part of this journey and I'm mm. I'm just trying to kind of work with one of the translators now to to go back out and deliver the books to the people yeah. Yeah, yeah. with him because he was so much a part of my journey, Sapon yeah, yeah, yeah. Lim, his name was. Sounds really similar to my experience in writing bone music. My Russian's negligible, you know, get me to, down to the subway and back. But I used a lot of amazing people who helped me, not just to, to actually translate, but to help me find people as well. You know, I'm sure you had the same thing, where you're trying to meet somebody you've heard of in some distant town and, and hunt them down. And It's a rather wonderful process, you know, as well, isn't it? And I think that you mentioned something earlier and re with regard to the Tony Morrison quote and... I had a strange experience, of course, too, because particularly when our exhibition went to Moscow, bow music, felt like, well, I'm an English guy, you know, it's like, isn't that a bit sort of impertinent, at least? <laughs> Shouldn't you be doing this? <laughs> the curator of Garage, which is the Museum of Contemporary Art in Gorky Park, I asked her that question and she said to me, if you're a Russian guy, you wouldn't be sitting here. Mm. Which I took in sort of two different ways, because it seemed a bit damning on one hand, but also I think sometimes it takes outsiders to maybe recognise the value of the story with this program. I mean, I, I like to collect stories and pass on other people's stories, and sometimes it does take outsiders to actually do that, you know, and you did that with this with this book, didn't you? Maybe 
it was too close, too painful. Mm. Who knows, whatever for a Cambodian to write it, uh, it took your sort of fascination, your passion and curiosity coming to it, and that first inspirational moment of hearing the tune in the casino, the abandoned casino, which propelled you into it, and sometimes maybe that's what it takes. Yeah, I agree, and it's so interesting hearing the parallels, but mm. I think probably the two most profound moments for me in this journey were were talking to it there was a couple of people i interviewed um one was um touch chata who mm. were he was part of the dracker band and he said to me you know thank you so much for for doing this i don't have time to write mm. my story and i i and, right. and then another one taxali who was a sort of recluse sort of turned his back on music after the mm. kimmy rouge he was so traumatized sure. and you know sort of for some people i think you know, the kind of soundtrack of Cambodia still remains this music today, mm. that 60s, 70s sound you hear everywhere. Mm. And for some people, it's a it's a wonderful thing to return to something before that time. Mm. Mm. But I think for mm. others, you know, he, he just, he turned his back and he created a family and he right. moved out of the city and he, you know, kind of had this other life mm. after. But he said to me at the end, thank you for mm. telling my story because I've held this inside for so long. Mm. I think it was really validating for him to tell his story in front of all of his family. He mm. had, you know, generations of his family around mm. him while he told his story and they knew very little about mm. his past and mm. what a kind of god he was. Mm. Uh, he was revered as this sort of guitar mm. virtuoso hero, untouchable, mm. almost mythical. Yeah, really, really uh, touching yeah, moments. Sort of so many people are so traumatised mm. by what's happened. Mm. And, um, and also I think that, you know, a lot of that music, which was... Western influenced, so it is quite fitting in a way that you, as a Westerner, yeah. came back and <laughs> yeah. completed the loop, right? Beginning, I sort of felt this conflict about writing mm. a straight-up music book but mm. as an outsider, mm. and I think it moved into something more personal mm. and something that I could write only from my perspective, which was a travelogue. Yeah. Um, for that reason, because yeah. it felt like the most respectful mm. way to mm. to write this story. So it's your story too. Yeah. Thanks for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Thank you, Stephen. Away from Beloved Lover, published by Granta in the UK, is Dee's amazing book. I'm sure you've picked it up from that. What a read it is. It's very touching for me because I felt some parallels with Dee in terms of how I come across the story of bone music, not being a writer or a researcher, just being a musician, really, and uh, whilst travelling, finding a record which you know, sent me on a crazy journey. And in Dee's case, this is a journey really into the heart of darkness and light. I am going to include, if you join our newsletter, I'll send you Dee's amazing uh, Spotify playlist of Cambodian music from all the eras we discussed. Thanks very much for listening and supporting us. BureauofLostCulture.com if you want more. See you next time. We're going to finish with that track which first inspired Dee in that abandoned casino, Synthesis cover version of White A Shade Of Pale. I'm not going to embarrass myself by trying to pronounce the Khmer version of it. But here it is. See you next time. i
Just a minute. 